If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all, Isaiah says to King Ahaz. We're going to spend a lot of time on the story this morning, but I really want you to take from this an encouragement as the remnant people of God, that is, those whom he is saving out of the collapsing of the age, which is not about any kind of economic or political reality. That is about the fact that the heavens and the earth are wearing out like an old garment due to the sin which man has brought upon them. And God is in the process of wrapping that up to its finality, all of it to be cast into the fire of hell. But you are going to survive this because you are inside the body of Jesus Christ who has already paid the atoning price for your soul, who has already washed you with the regenerating power of his life, and who has deposited in you the Holy Spirit to make you say, He is risen. (laughs) Alleluia. So you are the remnant. You are those who will make it through. And this is very key to our story here today. But then we want to hear the encouraging warning that a remnant does mean. It means that not everyone's inside that remnant. And that there are many who are outside who will not be firm because they are not firm in faith. And by faith, I mean trust in the true God. Trust in the true God. When push comes to shove, when affliction and trial come upon you, when you don't know which way you should go, what do you do? Do you try to fix it yourself? Or do you turn to the God who can fix it for you? And I'm not saying that just because I'm saying pray first, it means never act. I'm just saying pray first. Ask Jesus to enlighten your path. Commit your ways to Christ and he will sustain you. This is what Ahaz does not do. And it brings about the near total collapse of the little kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, here we go. Story time. If you'd like to open up to page 571 of your pew Bible, it's going to help you. Uh, Much of the text is also there in the bulletin for you, but it's always good to get your fingers on those pages of the Bible. Get used to finding out where things are. Page 571, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Uzziah is a name I hope you start to remember. Just think about catapults. I really mean that. Or ballista. Ballista are like catapults, but they're not. They're, uh, they can be things that fling rocks, but they can also be like giant bow and arrows that shoot big things down at people. Uzziah built this stuff in his age. Okay, uh, So remember Uzziah that way. He was, he was an engineer as a king. He was also faithful. He, he uh, led Israel, as you say, led Judah during a time of, of strong commitment to the word of God. His son, Jotham, we know far less about him, but also faithful. But Jotham's son, Ahaz, so we're in the days of Ahaz, son of these other two guys. Ahaz is the guy who comes along and says, you know what? Whatever this God was who blessed us in whatever ways, I want gods like the nations. 
And over the course of his reign, he does all manner of evil, even to the level of removing the altar from the place of sacrifice near the heart of the temple, which is that's a pretty big deal there. He ends up building an altar like the one he sees in Damascus, an altar to Baal there. And he offers sacrifices there. And then he takes the altar, which was made for uh, the Israelite sacrifices. He puts that to the side and he goes and he uses that for divination. That is, he personally tries to find out the future through magic at, at that altar. So Ahaz, uh, he brings about the complete uh, uh, unbelief of the peoples. His son Hezekiah will bring about a reformation. His stories uh, somewhat for another time. But in these days, okay, when this is happening, when the church is not just falling apart, but being ruled over by weak men who are putting in place of the word of God what those in power over them want them to say, Isaiah is sent. But before Isaiah is sent, more happens that's worse. More news from the outside. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, come up against Jerusalem to wage war against it. Okay, so if you don't have a map of the Holy Land in your head, um, try to start putting one there. I'm going to turn around and draw in the air in a moment to show you, but try to start putting one there, okay? So Israel's like this little strip of land by the Mediterranean Sea. And this little strip of land is a mountain range in the middle. On one side of that mountain range, you have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's on the other side of that mountain range. That's Israel. Um, that's the whole country. When uh, Rehoboam splits the country in half, north and south, there's a cut line there where the Sea of Galilee is now in the north and the, sea, the Dead Sea is in the south, Judah. So that becomes Israel and Judah, two nations now instead of one. Just northwest of Israel, the northern nation, is Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria, which is capitalized by, or the capital is Damascus. It is an ancient power. Um, it is a strong port city. Uh, it is still there to this day, which is really kind of interesting. Okay, so you have Syria there. Then, north of that, you have another empire, a greater empire, although at this time they're still not quite able to conquer all the way south. So north of Syria, you have Assyria. And I know that can be confusing. They sound so similar. They're quite different the way the ancient people would speak. Uh, Assyria at the ancient times was called Asher. Asher. So it really does have a different feel to it. But Assyria, its capital is Nineveh. Now, I know you've heard of Nineveh because you've heard the story of Jonah, yeah? And Jonah is sent to Nineveh. And Nineveh, of all places, the capital of Assyria, repents and believes in Jesus for a while. What a thing that was, I am certain. So one more piece to add to this map, well, two maybe, while we're looking at it. So uh, you got Assyria. If you follow the rivers that are in Assyria, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they trickle down over here to an area called Babylon. Yeah, And at this time, Assyria is really kind of in charge of Babylon. But eventually, as the history goes, Babylon's going to take over Assyria uh, in a little while. And part of that is because Assyria is going to get embroiled in a battle with Egypt, which is down over here. And they're really going to get weakened by that. And of course, they're going to try to conquer Judah in the meantime. And when that happens, Hezekiah's lifetime, uh, it all kind of goes bad because Assyria wants to defeat Jesus. And Jesus says no. All right, so just again, this story today, Judah, 
Israel, Syria, right? Syria is Damascus. Israel is capital. Uh, the capital of Israel is Samaria. Sometimes in this text, it's going to talk about Israel, but it's just going to say Samaria. It's going to talk about Syria, but it's just going to say Damascus. At one point, I think it's later than our text, it's going to call Damascus Aram, like the Arameans. So that's also a name for that area. And it's going to call Israel Ephraim. Why does it call Israel Ephraim? Well, because the tribe of Ephraim is the strongest tribe in Israel throughout much of their history, a stronger tribe than Judah ever was. And for that reason, uh, laying claim to the throne at various times. In fact, uh, Rehoboam's counterpart, the one who rebels against him, Jeroboam, oh, guess what he is? He's of the tribe of Ephraim. And why would Ephraim be so important historically? Well, if you read the book of Genesis, Ephraim is the son of Joseph. I mean, golly, who in all the story before David is really worth having the line of the king come from? Why not Joseph? Well, because God doesn't say so. But in any case, so Ephraim is going to be also the name of Israel, right? Israel is Samaria. Israel is Ephraim. Syria is Damascus. Syria is Aram. They both have kings, right? Uh, The king of Syria is a guy named Rezin. I don't know much about him honestly, but the the king of Israel is a guy named Pekah. Now, Pekah, if you don't remember him, that's okay. Uh, uh, He is one of the last five kings of the northern country of Israel, and in that time leading up to their destruction by Assyria, things get pretty topsy-turvy. There had been a dynasty. Uh, The dynasty is the family of Jehu, Jehu is called by Elisha, Jesus calls him, to go and punish Jeroboam's family. That's Jezebel, okay, Uh, and Ahab. So Jehu destroys that dynasty. And because he does this and is faithful to Jesus most of the time, not always, most of the time, Jesus promises he'll have four generations sit on the throne. Now, he isn't really that faithful, and so things get pretty bad pretty fast, but those generations do sit on the throne. So the last of these, his great-grandson is a guy named um, Zechariah. Zechariah, the fourth in line from Jehu. Zechariah uh, is uh, basically not very good at being king. And shortly after he comes to power, uh, there's a conspiracy against him. And a guy named Shalom offs him. Yeah, uh, he, he conspires against him and he has him murdered and he tries to seize power. But, but Shalom, who then is a king, he's the king of Israel, he only lasts a month. So whatever his conspiracy was, it was, it was poorly planned. A guy named Manahem, who has charge of the armies, he attacks where Shalom is. He takes over. He's able to maintain power for 11 years. He dies and his son, Pekiah, becomes king. But he can't seem to hold on to the power. After two years, Pika, the guy we're talking about, who's one of his officers, conspires against him and has him murdered. Pika is able to reign for 20 years. But at the end of his reign, as he's an old man, there's a guy named Hosea um, who also conspires against him and has him murdered. And Hosea is there when Assyria comes and destroys them all. All right. So if you can, that, that sounded a bit like a history lesson. I didn't give you dates, but but. What I want you to see is like the intrigue, like nobody can seem to get on the throne without someone behind him stabbing him in the back for for a good 30 years, 
right? As back and forth, topsy-turvy, a little bit of Game of Thrones-ish kind of stuff going on here. Pika's in the middle of all of this. And who is he? Well, he's nobody. That's kind of key. Pika, the son of Remaliah. Who's Remaliah? Nobody. He's nobody. He just seized power. That's going to come back in a moment. We'll, we'll talk about what that means. But so Rezin and Pika. For today's story, you can kind of put those names in your head. Rezin is the king of Syria. Pekah is the king of, uh, of Israel. They came up against Jerusalem to wage war. So they form an alliance. These two kingdoms, Israel and Syria, form an alliance against Judah. They decide, we'll work together, we'll take over Judah, and we'll put the guy we want on the throne. Tabiel, he shows up a little bit later. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. What's it? Jerusalem. So there's a lot of space here. They don't have cars. They got to do this all on foot and with horses. And horses aren't even that, that big a deal all the time. So um, what's happening then is these two nations, they come down and they are indeed attacking Judah in what's sometimes called the Syrio-Ephraimitish War. And they managed to take a city on the coastland named Elaf, which is a pretty big take for them. It's like, it'd be kind of like if someone took San Diego, right? It wasn't LA, but, but it was a big space and they took it, right? So they, they end up doing quite a bit of damage to the country, but they're not yet able to get to Jerusalem, the stronghold at the center of the country, by the time this story takes place, all right? So they're not quite able to get there, but there is war going on. There are people being captured. There is destruction. There is pillaging. There is fire. There's all this kind of stuff happening to the nation of Judah. And as a result, verse 2, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, right? Israel, the north, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. It's, yeah, you see that, you feel that. The trees are blowing, the leaves are shaking, knees are quivering because they know this is bad. The armies that are coming, we don't have the strength to stop them. We cannot mount enough of a defense. We're already losing ground. We're backing off, backing off, backing off, and there is nobody outside coming to help us. Or, well, well that's kind of where this is going to go a little bit here. But uh, so God, Jesus, the Lord says to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sha'ar Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So this is outside Jerusalem's kind of barricade walls. It's fortress walls. Uh, there's a pool there that would have been used for people who are bleaching and dying clothing. And to this day, I believe, you can still see locals uh, use this pool for, for washing things. Um, uh, it's also then a water source, which is pretty important if you're going to be under siege to figure out what to do with your water sources. So if you can imagine that Ahaz is out about the city preparing to be attacked, he's mounted on a horse, he's got a troop of men with him, they're, they're talking and counseling about how to prepare for the defenses at this washer's field. And Isaiah and his son Sha'ar Jashub are sent to him. Now, this is interesting here a little bit. Who is Sha'ar Jashub and why has he sent with him? Uh, we don't know a lot about Isaiah's family, like what happened to them, but we know the names of his kids because the names of his kids are part of the prophecies. So one of his kids is named Not My People, which is kind of like, can you imagine? Like you got stuck with that one. 
Like you, your your parents are calling you not my people all the time, right? Like that's that's the kid's name. But the reason not my people is named not my people is because God tells Isaiah to say to not my people, you're my people. And I will take you who are not my people, I'm gonna make you my people. So the kids' names become part of the prophecies. Okay, so Sha'ar Jashub's name means the remnant will be converted. I told you earlier on, on the, uh, this morning, uh, you are the remnant. You are those who will survive. The remnant will be converted. W- what does this mean? It means there's going to be a remnant. That means many are going to be destroyed, but there will be some who are not destroyed, and they're going to believe again. So this entire warfare scenario is punishment for idolatry that God will use in order to bring about new faith and reformation in the life of the church at that time, yeah? And this promise, the remnant will be converted, is supposed to go with, a- with Isaiah to face Ahaz in the hopes, truly, that Ahaz will believe. And as you'll see, Ahaz has given some pretty powerful promises. He just, he just won't believe them. Uh, by the way, Isaiah's name also has quite a bit of power. It means God saves. So God saves the remnant who will be converted, goes to meet Ahaz, the idolater, at the washer's field. And is supposed to say to him, verse 4, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, And do not let your hearts be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And that last part, smoldering stumps of firebrands, these these two dimly burning wicks, you got to kind of almost spit as you say it, like a batuh. They are nothing. They are weak. What are you afraid of? These These are not things to be afraid of. But the proof of your lack of fear is going to be slow down. Don't act. Call upon your God, right? It's not just don't do nothing. It's like before you do something, realize you have a God who is far stronger than these two little threats you're so afraid of. This fierce anger, here it is mocking, the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Um, because Syria, and again, why would you be afraid of that Syria and Ephraim, verse 5, the son of Remaliah. Notice how he keeps saying son of Remaliah, son of Remaliah. Remember I said how he's, he's got low birth? Like, we don't know who this guy is. He's a nobody. He just sees power. And he's pointing that out again and again. This guy's got no promises. Jehu had promises. Yeah? Jeroboam had promises. David had promises. Pekah, son of Remaliah, nobody. Just sees power on his own. How long can that last, God is saying, right? Even though he says to you, verse 8, excuse me, verse 6, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabal uh, as king in the midst of it. Verse 7, thus says the Lord Jesus, thus says God, it shall not stand. Be still, slow down. The plans of man shall not stand against the counsel of God. Not going to happen. And again, Isaiah is saying this to Ahaz, this idolatrous, faithless man who's getting ready. He's really scared. He's got some plans that haven't been revealed yet, but he's got some plans going on in the back of his head here. Um, In fact, maybe this is a good time to say that. Uh, Ahaz has been conspiring himself. So he's, he's got the word that these two kings are attacking him and destroying his land. He knows he can't go to battle against them. And so what does he do? 
I mean, it seems wise on every worldly level. He takes a lot of the treasure out of the temple. Now, that, that's wrong. This is holy gold and silver. But uh, he takes a lot of the treasure and he sends it with a special envoy up to, remember, we got Judah, Israel, Syria, Assyria, Nineveh, Asher. He sends a big welcome gift to them and says, hey, we're brothers, more than brothers. I'll be your vassal. Just come down and help me with this little problem called Damascus. Help me with this little problem called Israel. So he appeals to a worldly power to fix what is ultimately his spiritual problem. And he's still told by God, sit still, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. Your worldly problem isn't actually a problem. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. And then verse 8 and 9, you have something of a little poem here with like uh, in some of the text it puts a bit in parentheses. That's because that's the part you're supposed to focus on. But on either side of that bit in parentheses, you just have a repeat of these guys' names, right? These smoldering wicks. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin and Well, to God, who is he? And if you look at verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is not even his name, Pekah. It doesn't even say Pekah. It's just the son of Remaliah. Nobody. And so, within the middle of that there, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Now, what that really does mean is that northern Israel, not Syria, although it happens to them too, sort of, but northern Israel, within 65 years, will be gone. All the people who live there, tribes of Manasseh, tribes of Naphtali, and so forth, all of those who do not flee to Judah, some of them did, all of those who are uh, above the poorest of the poor, some of the poorest of the poor were left there, the rest will be scattered to the nations. Because when, it's Assyria that does it, when Assyria defeats you as a people, they break up your family, they break up your community, they take you away as captives to lands you don't belong to, where you can't speak the language, and if you're not sold into slavery, then you're just allowed to be poor there. And they did that so that your culture would be destroyed. It was very intentional. Your culture will be destroyed. Yeah? And then they'll take people from elsewhere that they've conquered, they'll bring them to your land, and they'll settle them on your land. So that, again, your place will no longer be your place. And that's the threat that's being said here, and that's indeed what does happen. Uh, Israel, the north, is conquered sooner than 65 years. People are taken away sooner than 65 years, but about 65 years later, the repopulation, the, the immigration practice that disperses and gets rid of the people who used to be there and interbreeds and makes what we have in the Samaritans in the New Testament, that has taken place in about 65 years from this time. Now, End of verse 9, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. The, the army that's attacking you is going to be destroyed. It's already been declared by Jesus. Uh, uh, the remnant will be saved. Uh, God is here to, to preserve you, Ahaz. But if you can't believe in me, well, then, you know, it's not going to work out for you. For you. So what, what is the thing to chase again? And the answer is knowing you have a true God. Not chasing God as if you don't have him. Christianity is not about how you must commit yourself to God so that you can. It's about how God has committed himself to you. So believe it. He's declared to you by great and precious promises that he holds you in the palm of his hand, that he will not leave you nor forsake you, that you are chosen out of the people of this world, and that no matter what happens to you in this life, it cannot take you away from him. 
Believe it. Huh? Believe it then. Be firm. So again, going on, verse 10, famous verses. God says to Ahaz, look, I'll even prove it to you. I've got a prophet here talking to you. Ask for a sign. Again, Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. It doesn't happen that often, but it does happen sometimes. Kings are, are told, ask for a sign. And, and when they ask for that sign and they get it, you know, that's the proof that the prophecy will come true. But Ahaz, well, first off, remember, he's, he's reached out to his political alliance with Asher already. So he doesn't need a sign. He doesn't need God. He's got his politics working for him. Yeah? Uh, but more than this, he, he, he doesn't believe any of it. And so he actually quotes Deuteronomy, which is kind of interesting. He quotes Deuteronomy, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as if somehow that meant he was going to uh, outsmart the prophet. Because truly, to ask God for a sign, to say, God, I'll believe in you if you'll give me a sign, that's putting God to the test. But when God comes to you and says, I'm going to give you a sign, what do you want it to be? And you go, I won't do that. That is putting God to the test too. That's what he did here, right? Which is why Isaiah kind of gets, gets a little angry. I kind of like the, the snark Isaiah is going to have next, verse 13. Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary man that you must weary God too? Right? Isn't it bad enough that no one likes you, King Ahaz? Isn't it bad enough that you have all these people trying to attack you and unseat you? Isn't it bad enough that you're destroying everything around you? But you also got to make God angry too? What's your problem, Ahaz? Therefore, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And now for the Christian, oh my goodness, are they beautiful words. Yeah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us, right? And indeed, we know that in the days of Caesar Augustus, the angel Gabriel went out to meet in the field. A young woman named Mary told her that she would be with child by the Holy Spirit. Her son would be called the son of the most high God. And this is Jesus of Nazareth, who uh, Christ, he has died, but Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Uh, Jesus is king of the universe. God in flesh made manifest to us. This promise is here as prophecy. There's a whole bunch of debate about whether or not there was also a temporal fulfillment of this prophecy, not that a virgin conceived and bore a son, but that a young woman, barely flowering into her youth, would conceive and bear a son in Ahaz's household as a sign that what was going to happen to the northern country would happen. We'll leave that for actually the second sermon today. Um, but, but just know that you know, there is a potential that this has a twofold fulfillment, the way that most Old Testament prophecies do. But no matter how we look at it, we have to see that, as Luke says, uh, this is ultimately about Jesus. Right? The sign God gives that the remnant shall be saved is Jesus. Verse 15 is where we kind of have this potential develop that, that it has to be temporary or temporal in its fulfillment too. It says, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Verse 16, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Okay, so before he knows how to choose the evil or the good, that means before he's 12, before he's 13, 
before this child who's going to be born of this maiden reaches the age of manhood, Israel and Syria will be stopped from what they're trying to do to you, Ahaz. That makes it hard for it to only be about Jesus. So who was it? That's the debate, and that's what we don't have time to get into here. But what happened as a result was that uh, the north and much of Judah end up in a very bad state because of this whole war that's taking place. And that's why this boy who's going to be born as a sign of God standing with them is going to eat the curds and the honey. Okay, so the curds and the honey is about this. Normally, you would eat bread and meat. That's what you would eat. You'd have your sheep, you'd kill it, you'd have some bread to go with it, and that's your meal. You might have some oil, you might have some fat, but, but that was your meal. Wine also, okay? So curds, butter, milk, uh, you would eat it, but it really wouldn't be all you lived on. And honey, like you weren't beekeeping. Like if you found honey, you were finding honey. So the idea of having nothing but milk and honey means that all of your farming is gone. This isn't a, this isn't a happy promise. This isn't, oh, wow, I like curds. You know, this is, this is you got nothing to live on but your one goat, and it's making milk. And if you get some honey for it, you're happy. Right? And that's what this young boy is going to grow up in, a society where the farming has been depleted, where the vines are gone, where the fields are gone. And, and that is where I, I do tend to think that this is Hezekiah, uh, by the way, the, the boy who grows up. But um, again, there's debate about that. You don't have to agree with me on that one. The point here, again, is that God is going to send destruction upon this country now, but he's going to save a remnant, right? Verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That is, since the kingdom was, just, was split in half, north and south, it has not been as bad for the people as it will be in your days, Ahaz, because you wouldn't let Jesus save you. And so who's going to come against you? The king of Assyria, it says. It's the last phrase. The king of Assyria, which this whole time, that's the one Ahaz is resting on. Like, oh, this guy, this prophet, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I got Assyria coming to help me. I got Assyria coming to help me. The prophet goes, Assyria is going to come and crush you, which they do. So long story short, we're kind of out of time. When Assyria does come and help, they, they take out Damascus. Right? And then as a result, uh, Israel has to re- repel a little bit, uh, come back to the, the north, has to retreat a little bit. And you have all this conspiracy taking place. you got two more guys become king, and then Assyria takes them out too. Once Assyria has grabbed those two nations, they don't stop. They're like, ooh, we're doing pretty good. Well, what's due to us? And, and Egypt's down there too. So they go down and they start working their way south, trying to take over more territory. By the time it's all done, all of Judah has been conquered by Assyria with the exception of Jerusalem. And at this very same washer's field, a guy called the Rabshakeh is calling out to Hezekiah's men on the wall, we're going to kill y'all. You're going to eat your own poop. And that's when Hezekiah goes in the temple, prays, and Jesus sends the angels to finally push back Assyria. More story than we got time for today. We're out of time. I want to drive home one point. The remnant shall be saved, and you are that remnant. In terms of the great picture of history, you're in the body of Jesus Christ. The destructive forces of the devil, all his wicked demons and angels, they can do nothing to you. The collapse of the universe, the mountains falling into the sea, you shall rise again from these things. What stands against you now in this modern age? Nothing. Nothing. Because he's engraved you in the palms of his hands. He is risen. Alleluia. In the name of Jesus. Amen.